This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. here we're ready to go mm-hmm. just drinking some some coke some is it some coca-cola it's not cherry coke you're not a young pope problem. no 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 it's regular coke zero um all right so this is what it's like when we record the podcast everybody <laughs> hello it's nice to see you hello uh patrons who are taking part in our bonus stream we've never done this before if you can't tell um uh we picked up another viewer keep uh, going yes great okay (laughs) so welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name of course is andrew hello you've never and of course of course so we are doing a new thing for bonus episodes in 2017 that we are starting with this uh episode here where i will be talking about cloud atlas by david mitchell and Andrew and I th- are think uh, I think are very nervous that we can look over at people listening to this show right now. They're looking at our rooms like we've got a very <laughs> like yes, there is a, a poster of Middle Earth on my back wall. Yes, um, that is a poster of Jane Eyre. That's made. It's like word art. That's like made up of all the words from the first part of Jane Eyre. It's a nerdy book poster. Yeah, What's, I've, what are your posters? I've got you've got a trumpet. I've got a trumpet. Uh, mm-hmm. that was now is that just a trumpet or is there a story there? Uh, it, well, I played trumpet in high school, and uh, <laughs> my best, <laughs> my best, uh, one of my good friends' moms gave it to me as like a graduation gift. Uh, I took math in high school, so I have a painting of a math book <laughs> in my living room. Like, I was all I was a drum major in marching band. Like it was like a whole part of my oh, high school nerd. identity. Uh, and then the other poster on my wall. Uh, next to a lamp that's not on is uh, like a map from a 10K that I ran a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham is asking where Andrew's slimes are. Slimes. Um, Andrew, They're off camera. Andrew takes a lot of photos for his day job. Where yeah, he so there's like tech. one specific corner of my desk that tens of thousands of people have seen like a million <laughs> times. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate when like text conversations with me make it into your reviews as you're like messing with messaging apps. So I feel like that hasn't happened as often recently. Well, I'm sorry. I'll have to make sure that I up the up the ante. So we're doing a bonus uh, episode, podcast, right? Yeah. For our book podcast, where one of us talks about a book, the other person he listens to sits it, sits and listens <laughs> quietly. Uh, and we're doing this different as a live stream. So we may occasionally, if something comes up, we may. Uh, check the chat for a question or or reference that. But other than that, we're going to try and do the show you know and love. Yeah, I've got it up and I'm looking at it. So if anybody says anything cool, I'll like, well, we can address it. Okay, but it better be cool. <laughs> you make it cool. Uh, so I, as I said, I read Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. It was recommended to us by one of our patrons, uh, Ken Lee. Um, and if you are not listening to this stream and you want to in the future, you can find out more at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, this book was published in 2004 and was made into a movie. Do you know who was in right. that movie? In 2012. All right. It was by the Wachowskis. Yeah. Who then this was after their heyday, which of course was Matrix and the Speed Racer movie. <laughs> that was not a bad movie, to be honest. Was it? It was fine. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it also like forty eight minutes long? Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> okay. Um it had Tom Hanks in it. It did. Sir Tom Hanks. It had Halle Berry. Uh-huh. It had Hugo Weaving. Yes. It had some other people in it. I sent you a picture of the poster so that you could have a real good reference point for what Tom Hanks mm-hmm. was doing in that movie. He's got henna tattoos on I his face. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's kind of, and Halle well, Berry looks the, really worried about who's it. Who's the guy below him who looks like David F. Tompkins in a Abraham Lincoln hat? <laughs> it might be 
Uh, David F. Tompkins? Paul F. Tompkins? Paul F. Tom- who's Yeah, who's David F. Tompkins? I don't <laughs> I don't know. This podcast is off the rails. See, normally this is the kind of thing that I could edit out to make myself sound less stupid, but there are people just sitting in the room staring at us. Yeah, that's true. So we should start talking about David Mitchell, right? Do the thing. Maybe that's where I got David from because we were talking about somebody whose name is David. That's definitely where you got it from. Mm -hmm. What do you know about him? I know he was born in 1969. Mm -hmm. I know that he is not the comedian David Mitchell. Oh, okay. I didn't know there was a comedian David Mitchell. There is all there's a British comedian named David Mitchell, and if you've ever seen that meme floating around on Twitter, where it's like somebody dressed up as a Nazi who's asking if if they're the baddies. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yes, that's, that's him. him. That's okay. David Mitchell, the comedian. So not the guy who um, wrote this book. No, David Mitchell, the bookman. Yep. Uh, has written a total of seven novels. Uh, Cloud Atlas, which was published in 2004, like you said, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, number Nine Dream, published in 2001. Those are the most uh, famous. Yeah, his first um, novel was Ghost Written in 1999. And that's the name of the novel. It's not, it was not a ghost written oh, sure. novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a habit of naming books after songs by people who have been married to Yoko Ono. <laughs> So, number nine dream uh, is named after a John Lennon piece. Um, he did that, and then Cloud Atlas was named after uh, a piece by Yoko Ono's first husband, uh, mm-hmm. Toshi Ichiyagani. Um, he wrote a series of p- uh, piano pieces called Cloud Atlas. Uh, he says he probably can't duplicate this pattern in- indefinitely. Yeah, because she's been married to three people, and the last one was John Lennon. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you don't. I just feel like you should have mapped it out a little bit better before deciding that's what the theme was going to be. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he's also written um, some opera libretti. Um, a portion of Number Nine Dream was turned into a short film starring Martin Freeman called The Vorman Problem. Let me tell you, one of his operas was called Wake, and it was based on a fatal 2000 fireworks disaster. Whoa. Yeah, it was a fireworks explosion that killed like 22 people. Whoa. And the, ex- the blast could be felt like 30 miles away. Or oh my ni- gosh. 19 miles? I forget miles and kilometers. They're like basically the same. <laughs> They're basically the same. Uh, he also, he spent time in Japan and Sicily. Um, after um, he- yeah, he lived in Sicily for like a year and yeah. then taught English in Japan for eight years. Uh-huh. And um, he has, with uh, K.A. Yoshida, he co-translated mm-hmm. a book, a Japanese book called The Reason I Jump. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he lives in Ireland with his wife and his two kids. And that's his, that's his deal, pretty much. Did you see that in 2016, he buried a book in the Nordmarka Forest in Oslo? As part of the Future Library Project. Okay, I knew about the Future Library Project. <laughs> I didn't know that you needed to like take it into the woods so the White Walkers could come and get it. <laughs> he, li- he literally buried a book that he wrote called From Me Flows What You Call Time. Gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, um, the Future Library Project is... Um, it's it wants to collect one original work of fiction a year for a hundred years and then release them at the end of the thing. So this started in like twenty fourteen. Yeah, the and the first person to put something in was Margaret Atwood. Yeah, it was a book called Scribbled Moons. And I just one, are you really putting your best stuff in this in this time <laughs> capsule forever? Like, are you really putting your your A plus? Well, who's editing best it? work in this? Yeah, I don't. Okay, so who's editing it? Are you really putting your best work in there? Do you really think the world's going to be around to read your books in a hundred years? Like, can you extrapolate from current trends and tell me that this is gonna this is gonna end okay? Well, and is it gonna sell well a hundred years from now? Is what I like. Have you anticipated the market for the book that you have written? I don't think you sell them. I think people take pilgrimages into the woods and they sit and they read all hundred of the stories and then they walk out and then somebody else can go in. Ah, uh, yes, the book woods, mm-hmm. Oslo's book woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting thing about Cloud Atlas in terms of its publication, I don't know if you came across this, Andrew, there's substantial differences between the U.S. publication and the U.K. publication. Um, I read just they took out all the use in the American no, version? No, it's or? not that. Uh, okay. Some guy actually right. like wrote a 30-page academic paper about it because it's so different. Um, 
the manuscript was sitting unedited at Random House for like three months because some editor like left and just like it was on his desk or something. And meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, uh, Mitchell was going through the editing, copy editing process and making a bunch of changes. And those changes never got sent back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then a new guy took over at Random House and was like, hey, you should make these changes. And he did. (laughs) But they never like cross-referenced them. Uh, so there's a bun- there's two different versions of the book, um, and has has either one emerged as the canonical version or or um, like to this day are the U.S. and U.K. versions just different books that were edited by different people. So I have I have quotes from him about this. He says I really never dreamed back then that anyone would ever notice or care enough to email me about it, or that the book would still be in print 13 years later, let alone sell a couple million copies and be studied or thought about by academics. The UK okay. version was submitted first, and the US version some weeks later. So if I was dead, he says, and couldn't deny it, the inference would be that the American version is more definitive. Being alive, however, I'd ask readers to view the difference uh, between the versions less like a director's cut versus the original release, and more like two very slightly different versions of the same song, recorded with the same musicians, in the same room, at the same session, with differences of only a few notes and a few words, which you can only spot if you concentrate intently. So, like, that's a window into the mind of the dude who wrote this book. (laughs) That's, I guess I get his attitude. Yep. Mostly. But also... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who says, well, I finished this dumb book. Oh, I guess Oh, the two people are editing it, whatever. Like, oh, it's not a big deal. Who cares? No one's going to read this book anyway. This is stupid. <laughs> he called it a lot of faff, which sure. is not slang that I know. And he said that he has it's a f- fluff, basically, but I think maybe a little, a little more, more dismissive. A little more British. Even. Yeah. Yeah. He has- well, yeah, a little more British primarily. <laughs> he has a low faff tolerance threshold, he says. So he just kind of <laughs> just went with it. Uh, and the American version is what actually got translated into French and what was used for the film manuscript. So, again, uh, that's the one I read. That's the one we're talking about today. <laughs> that's the All definitive right. version. <laughs> so this is the U.S. edition of the podcast. Yes. Oh, good call. Good call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham says uh, one version is the real version and one version is the weirdly off mp3 you downloaded from BitTorrent that said it was the real version <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this did happen to me in the Napster days I had so many you songs you download some weirdly ripped like a like an mp3 that had like skips in it from the cd that it uh-huh. got imported from uh-huh. <laughs> I have um, a song that is not by the doors uh, what is it that the House of New Orleans or the ha- the House of the Rising Sun, which I think is like an animal song. I don't know. Um, what? That my computer thinks is by the doors. And I also have, uh, I downloaded like a dozen MP3s by college acapella groups that are all attributed to Rockapella, which is not, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not true. <laughs> if any acapella group exists anywhere <laughs> in time, it's Rockapella. So let's talk about this book. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about Tell the about Cloud book, Atlas the by David book. Mitchell, the author, not the comedian. Yes. So one of the most important things about this book is its structure. So I, we will go into it, and, and I don't know if it spoils anything about the book, but it's central to the experience of reading it. So we are going to talk about it. Um, one of the characters that you meet is a composer in the early 20th century. His name is Frobisher. Um, and he is writing a piece that he ends up calling like the Cloud Atlas Sextet or whatever. And he refers to it as a sextet for overlapping soloists, piano, clarinet, cello, flute, oboe, and violin, each in its own language uh, or key, scale, and color. In the first set, each solo is interrupted by its successor. In the second, each interruption is recontinued in order. Revolutionary or gimmicky? Shan't know it's t- until it's finished, and by then it'll be too late. I mean, I think pretty clearly yes, though. Like gimmicky, yeah, yes, definitely that. gimmicky. Yeah, <laughs> revolutionary. Um, so that is how the book is structured. There are a bunch of characters that we meet in chronological order, uh, and at a certain point in each person's story, 
it gets cut off or you don't know what happens next and it jumps to the next story. Uh, there's a point in the middle where that story does not get interrupted and then you work your way back and each story gets like a resolution. I think okay. I think there's either a poem or a short story or something that kind of inspired it. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to find it. Um, it's a book by Italo Calvino called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, um, which I don't know if that's a poem or what that. It's a novel. Sounds okay. Um, I was going to say it sounds poem. Yeah, what do it I sounds know? poemy. Um, but Mitchell decided to have each story get like a closing. It sounds like that book does not like give a conclusion to each story that interrupts um so So, okay so you got these stories they all keep interrupting each other because they're all a bunch of jerks i guess (laughs) and then so okay so why do it like this instead of just telling six stories number one number two how do these relate to each other and number three like what's the are, are there stylistic differences or are you just getting different perspectives or like are they telling one big story eventually or what's the okay that's a lot of questions that's a so lot just of answer answer all of those and i'm gonna leave okay you leave me here with the chat i'll answer all those questions uh okay. first they're not telling one big story um there is not a like overarching MacGuffin that links each story um you to your other question each story does have a distinct style so let me just run through the titles of each story so we have the pacific journal of adam ewing he is a like seafaring notary uh in the south pacific and this is taking place in the mid 19th century uh so it feels like mid to late 19th century so it feels not unlike uh Robinson Crusoe or Moby Dick or any of these like 19th century historical account stories. Seafaring notary just I'm just going to say sounds like an occupation you would come up with at like an improv <laughs> night. Okay, we need a location, a uh, grocery store. Uh grocery store. Okay, we need an occupation. Um I'm hearing here, uh, check out cashier. No, that's too obvious. Uh, notary, yeah, notary at the grocery store, and uh, he just uh, come back from a long voyage at sea. Okay, go. <laughs> Listen, Laura, we gotta go back to the ocean. That's uh, this is why I don't do improv. <laughs> what was that? This is my seafaring notary. See, I would so I would have taken it like a piratey direction. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about Mr. Adam Ewing is that he's not very piratey, even though he's on this like boat full of dudes that are not pirates, but they're sur- they're scallywags. Um, so that's <laughs> the first chapter. We'll come back to some of these characters for some of the plot stuff. The next one is called Letters from Zedelgeim. It is about Frobisher, the composer. He is in early 20th century Europe. He has run away from London. Um, that is an epistolary chapter. He's writing letters to his friend and lover, Rufus Sixsmith. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next chapter is called the gas. Oh no. The next chapter is called, uh, half lives. The first mystery of Louisa Ray it takes place in 1975 and follows a reporter under like doing some work, uh, trying to like suss out a conspiracy with some nuclear plant. Then we jump to the present-ish day for the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. Uh, the Louisa Ray story, sorry, feels like a potboiler. It feels like a mid to late 20th century thriller. Um, okay. There's a very specific, uh, I'll say it again, MacGuffin that she's going after. She's trying to get this these plans for this or this report um and there's like a whole conspiracy uh timothy cavendish is written sort of like an absurdist modern novel uh he's mm-hmm. a book publisher that ends up getting locked in an elderly person's home <clears throat> almost like it's an insane asylum uh some goofy circumstances lead him to that then we jump into the future uh into future korea uh into this chapter called the horizon of Sanmi 451, I believe it's called. Okay. Make sure I get that right. The... That's that is what I have yeah, here. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And Sanmi 451 is a fabricant or a clone that is employed in something called Papa Song's Diary. 
which is like a fast food restaurant. Uh, okay. And all the people. It does sound like a place, yeah, that you would go and they would sing to you as your food is delivered. Yep. Uh, like, like a Johnny Rockets kind of, yeah. but like off brand. <laughs> like a crappy Johnny Rockets, yeah. Um, and Korea at that point is called Neosokopros. It is what is referred to as a corpocracy. This feels like your classic near future sci-fi novel. When when I talked about Snow Crash a couple months ago, I actually mm-hmm. like this whole section a bit more than Snow Crash in terms of kind of the way that you uh, explore the, the present by like making up a future. Um, and that is written as like an interview between uh, Sanmi 451 and an archivist of the past. Uh, then we get... Slusha's Crossin and the rest of that titles what and and all that happened after um okay what is it called Slusha's Crossin Crossin and and everything everything after after is the complete with the apostrophe yes uh so that is a post-apocalyptic Hawaii uh a dude named Zachary who speaks in this kind of imagined English island dialect uh that has lots of apostrophes and words run together um, he's telling a story to descendants of his or to people in a community that he lives in. Um, so that's very different in terms of style. That is mm-hmm. the pivot point chapter. Um, so we get to this. So that's the story that gets finished, and then you start moving back yes. through the rest. Then of we start moving backwards. So then we go back to Sonmi. Uh, then we go back to Cavendish. Then we go back to Louisa Ray. Then we go back to Frobisher, and then we end on Adam Ewing. And here's how they're all linked, Andrew. Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, why do it this way instead of just writing six stories? And I guess the answer, like, the quick answer is because people talk about it if you structure it weird. <laughs> yeah, on what, at a very base level, by structuring it weird, he has lent a gravity to all of these stories that they probably wouldn't have on their own. Okay. Um, I also think that he gets away with some things in these stories because he doesn't have to flesh them out further. Okay. Um, by splitting them up and kind of butting them up against each other. So anyway, like here's what kind of what kind of stuff. Um, in per- sorry to keep interrupting. No, you. no, that's a good point. I I don't want to let that go. Cavendish, that whole like, it's really absurd the humor of it. So like Cavendish's story is he's a book publisher. He's like 65 years old. Um, one of his clients is kind of has, I think has some mob ties and publishes like a bad book mm-hmm. and they're at this party. And the one critic that eviscerated his book is there. So this dude like throws that person off a balcony and they die. Uh, and Cavendish ends up making a bunch of money. Cause now this dude's going to jail and the book's really popular. <laughs> Because that's how that works. Uh, okay. So then Cavendish uses all that money to pay off some debts, and the guy's family or mafia ties show up and want more money from him. So he like flees and ends up like getting high on a train and signing his life away in this like elderly insane asylum. Um, and then the rest of the story is him trying to like break out. Mm-hmm. And so like on its own, I don't know what that book would be <laughs> if you just wrote that story, you know? Uh-huh. I, I think it might be a little bit more o- underwhelming than it is because it's it's actually a nice comic break from you know, based on how absurd it is and Cavendish is this kind of goofy character. Um, right. I think the chapter you could make the most out of on its own is the Future Korea Sonmi 451 chapter just because she's really interesting and... Mitchell gets to do the most world building there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to come back to that. Let me sh- let me tell you how they're all linked, Andrew. Okay, do it. So the book starts off, we get Ewing. He's writing in this journal. Every once in a while, he breaks it up as the dates change, like any 18th or 19th century book that you've read that pre- pre- pretends to be someone's journal. Uh, okay. So then <coughs> the journal cuts off mid-sentence at one point and it skips into Frobisher. And someone sent us a message on Facebook. I don't remember who it was. Um, someone who works in a bookstore that was like, the number of people that come oh, up yeah. to me <laughs> and are and wonder if this book is broken, basically. Because <laughs> it does just drop off mid-sentence. 
um, you find out in a later Frobisher chapter that he has he shacks up with this uh, composer named Vivian Ayers that he uh, really respects and is working for as a like the guy's sick so he's like writing his music for him basically um, mm-hmm. he discovers a copy of that journal in the room he's staying in but the second half of it has been ripped out so get it yeah okay cool <laughs> Uh, it's the Sopranos finale of books. Yeah. So then... It's cut off, but they meant to do it that way. Since Frobisher's chapters are all like written as letters from him to Sixsmith, at one point, the letters just stop. Uh, and Louisa Ray, in her story, um, Rufus Sixsmith, who was receiving those letters, is the guy whose report she's tracking down on this nuclear plant. So her okay. story is... He is the lone dissenting voice on this nuclear plant. Um, the corporation behind it is basically out to kill him because if this report sees the light of day, then you know the government's going to shut them down because it's it's unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been writing, you know, he was receiving letters from Frobisher, so she gets a copy of them, but she doesn't have all of them. Um, some she writes this book. Someone writes this book about Louisa Ray and Cavendish, who's a book publisher. Uh, gets it, gets a copy of it, and ends up reading okay. some of it in his chapter, but doesn't have the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, Sonmi is interesting because we have jumped far enough ahead in the future that we are in a, like, there was a before time called, like, the pre-skirmish, which presumably, like, a nuclear war or something like that. And That's always what happens when there's a before time. Like, yeah. it's never... <laughs> It's never something benign, like, oh, we had a baby, and then everything before that's the before time. It's like, no, everybody died. Yeah, it's not explicitly nuclear war, but they refer to other parts of the world as the deadlands, and there's lots of talk about, like, waste and stuff. I mean, I guess you wouldn't come up with a better (laughs) name, right? Because you wouldn't want to, like, nobody would want a place like that to be named after them. No, and I don't remember what the name of the trash zone is in Infinite Jest, mm. but it's similar to that, except it's whole Yeah, countries. I don't remember yeah. what that is either. Um, so in Sonmi's world, everything is like lowercase branded, um, if that makes sense. Uh, the, like, instead of iPads, they have what are called Sony's... Um, any movie sure. movies are called Disney's and coffee is just called Starbucks. Sure. I mean the last one I think already is yeah is true. I'm gonna go get I'm gonna go get some Starbucks. Um, right. But she's watching this Disney at one point, and it's a before time Disney, and it is someone made a movie out of Timothy Cavendish, like out of his life. Okay. And then in the future, future post-apocalyptic Hawaii with with our man Zach, uh, his whole deal is his race of people are this like peaceful farming community that is continually raided by a cannibalistic community called the Kona, um, and once a year, this technologically advanced group of people called the Prescients show up, do some trading with Zach's people. And one year, this woman, Marinim, comes and stays with them. And is like, I'm going to learn about your culture. I'm going to stay here. Mm-hmm. And she has with her this, like, Skype egg. It's called it's called an Horizon. She can Skype to her people on her island. And she also has a recording of Sonmi, presumably what this interview was. Okay. Um, and Zach's people, like, worship sewn me as if she's a god so it's weird to find out that she was just like a clone person from the past mm-hmm. okay um and then once zach's story wraps up uh it ends with someone watching that holograph so it goes back to sewn me sewn me story ends with her asking to watch the disney again so it goes back to cavendish cavendish's story uh ends with him kind of escaping and he gets the rest of Louisa Ray's story. So he publishes it. Louisa Ray gets the rest of the letters from six Smith's niece. Uh, Zadelgeim finds the rest of Ewing's journal used to prop up the leg of a bed, which is why it was ripped out of the book in the first place. 
mm-hmm. and then you're back in Ewing's story. So contrivances. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it like without some kind of thematic through line, or maybe there is some thematic yeah. through line and we haven't talked about it. It still does feel like six stories kind of linked together superficially and then I don't know, I just I'm kinda of wondering what the book says, like what what makes it a single book, like what makes yeah. it work as one book. Yeah. Let me hit if you with a let me sense. hit you with a quote from Mitchell that's gonna unlock this for you. Hit me. Literally all of the main characters, except one, are re- <laughs> which that's a weird way to start a quote. Literally Thanks. all of the main characters except one are reincarnations of the same soul in different bodies throughout the novel, identified by a birthmark. There's a comet shaped birthmark on all of the characters. That's just a symbol, really, of the universality of human nature. The title itself, Cloud Atlas, the cloud refers to the ever-changing manifestations of the Atlas, which is the fixed human nature, which is always thus and it ever shall be. So the book's theme is predacity, the way individuals prey on individuals, groups on groups, nations on nations, tribes on tribes. So I take this theme and, in a sense, reincarnate that theme in another context. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I can unpack that for you a little bit. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're right, if so, in the history chapter, in Ewing's chapter, we're in the South Pacific. He's a dude from San Francisco. So, like, he's encountering the Maori culture. In particular, he's encountering this group of people called the Moriori, uh, who underwent what is essentially a genocide um, due to you know British settlers and the empowerment of the Maori who came in and like conquered them and enslaved them Mm -hmm. um the book kind of opens with ewing seeing one of them um this guy named atua uh being whipped for insolence Uh, that guy later escapes and like sneaks onto ewing's boat um the thing about the maori not the maori excuse me the moriori is and this is true this is real about their culture um i did not know about them previously uh they adopted a pacifist culture that if you like kill someone, you are just completely ostracized from society. There's only like 2,000 of them on this island. Um, okay. And you basically would end up killing yourself because you couldn't survive in your loneliness and you, you had nothing to, to eat or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So the book then goes through cycles of people moving into other people's spots and inflicting violence on them. Um, the other, you know, you see this in particular in the Louisa Ray story and then in the future Hawaii story. Um, the Louisa Ray story is about this kind of corporate greed that is willing to enact like horrible nuclear, the potential of horrible nuclear disaster on, you know, California, including its native peoples, you know, Native American tribes, and then um, some groups of Hispanic uh, communities in that area in Buena, Buenos Aires, I think, mm-hmm. um, and how they are, you know, willing to risk that for their own greed. And then in the future, there's this sense of like the parallels between the Maori and the Moriori are there in the Kona and Zachary's people, and then the like technologically advanced prescience are sort of like the Americans, British from the first chapter kind of coming in like do we change this culture do we just show up and observe it do we ruin this culture by observing it in the first place Uh, probably that one probably that one (laughs) yeah uh and then this idea of when he says predacity like you know predatory behavior people kind of feeding on one another um in the this is a big spoiler for the uh clone section the future korea section so if you're like i'm gonna go read cloud atlas like chill out go i'm really i'm really have big questions about how they handle future korea and i don't (laughs) want any of it to be spoiled for me so this is i think this is the most interesting part of the book as i said earlier i like that it's structured as an interview i think that allows you to enjoy this character a bit more than some of the others um and it's just a more unique way to tell the story Mm-hmm. Also, you get this kind of weird future world building stuff where like stuff is called Sony's and and Disney's and whatever. It's also the end point of like genetic modification. So they can kind of farm these 
fabricants in what they call womb farms, and okay. then they are genetically modified for their specific job. So you could, they have folks who are like specifically engineered to go work in the like anywhere that's radioactive, or okay. you know work in construction or whatever. And Sony mm-hmm. is engineered to be pleasant and work in service. Uh, they are also engineered to like not really develop full sentience. Uh, and then after 12 years, they are told that their debt will be repaid and they get to go to what is called exultation in Hawaii. Okay. The big spoiler there is what do you think? What do you, do you think is real, Andrew? Do you think they really get to go to Hawaii? Probably not. What do you think happens? They probably don't go to Hawaii and it's on their minds or they're reading a story about it or something sad and depressing. No, they take all the they take all the clones who've done their 12 years of servitude and they just kill them and then they chop them up and liquefy them and turn them into what's called soap, which is the food for clones. Oh, okay. I've seen this movie, I think. <laughs> no, there was this, so there was this and it, and somebody in the chat, Graham, referenced The Island, which oh, actually yeah. is a ripoff of this like 70s movie, I think, that they did on um, MST3K once called um, Parts of the Clonus Horror. <laughs> and it was about this um, this like complex of clone people. Sure. Who rich folks like had them raise and then they could use their own clones as organ farms. OK, yeah. And so whenever one of the rich people needed needed an organ from their clone, they would get a party and then they would go to America. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of going to America, they would just get frozen in a big freezer and they would just hang there until they until their hosts needed more organs. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So it's so, it's sort of like that. Uh mm-hmm. the cannibal reference in terms of the so the the Fabricants need to eat what is this thing called soap because they can't eat like normal person food, and right. it's a way to. Con- and you're not, and you're not supposed to eat soap. You're saying, well, human people are not like humans. Hu- humans are not supposed to eat. No, soap. Andrew, I hate to break it to you. Stop eating soap. What if you like the great taste? <laughs> oh, th- <laughs> the great new taste of soap. Yeah, I have a, I have the opposite of that genetic thing that some people have. Soap tastes like cilantro to me. Huh. Have you never heard of that before? No, I have. I just can't think of a funny thing to say about soap tasting like cilantro. Let's just move on. Okay, ben. good. <laughs> uh so in so in this way that this cannibal thing is is recurring because in the first chapter uh, when Ewing meets this guy named Dr. Henry Goose. Um, <laughs> his name is Dr. Henry Goose. Uh, mm-hmm. And he tells Ewing about how he likes to bring back cannibal teeth from these South Pacific islands and then sell them to dentists who use them to make false teeth and then laugh at rich people who have cannibal teeth in their face. It's a very mm. specific chip on Mr. Goose's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also have you know the cannibals in the future Hawaii section as well. So this like people like not just thematically preying on one another, but like literally just eating but also each just other. eating each other. Sure. Um, and so the thing about this future Korea chapter that I think is really interesting is that the this idea of slavery comes up and how you dominate other people and who's in power and how you like propagate a hierarchy okay uh there's this fallacy that so many references that the enslaved she's arguing with this archivist whether or not the fabricants are actually slaves or not and she says there's a fallacy that they don't have personalities uh this fallacy is propagated for the comfort of purebloods aka regular people um to enslave an individual troubles your consciousness uh, your consciences, but to enslave a clone is no more troubling than owning the latest six-wheeler Ford ethically. Because you cannot discern our differences, you believe we have none. But make no mistake, even the same stem fabricants cultured in the same womb tank are as singular as snowflakes. 
So like basically how people have justified slavery for all of human existence yeah. is just to come up with some technicality for why they're not actually people so we don't need to worry Precisely. about it. Precisely. Neat. I'm glad we cracked this one. Real glad that we cracked it. We can't like crack healthcare, but we do have justification for slavery all figured out. Well, and then this is echoed in the closing Ewing chapter where he is on this other island, this French Polynesian island um, called Rayatea. It's near Bora Bora, um, where these Christian missionaries have basically subjugated the local culture there. Uh, And this guy goes on a whole riff about this ladder of civilization where, of course, white people are at the top. And then, like, he Mm -hmm. puts people, you know, I think he says the Latin people are right below them or the Italians or something. Um, mm-hmm. And then so far so, so good. And then uh, ranks people very inappropriately, but I guess you know as expected for the 19th century. And uh, Dr. Henry Goose says, "I don't. I mean, that's kind of redundant. Here's what I think: you either eat or you get eaten. That's it. I'm Henry Goose. I'm out. Like it's a very simple reduction of that property." I just feel like, like, okay, so your name is Dr. Henry Goose. <laughs> uh-huh. I've, and you're espousing eating people. I feel like you're inviting yourself up to, like, you're inviting, you're opening yourself up to some pretty, like, sick posthumous burns. You are. Like, someone's finally, someone's finally eating you, and then they're like, oh, his goose is cooked. <laughs> I wish I could say that the doctor's goose gets cooked. He gets away. Mm-hmm. He turns out to not be a good guy. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> weird, wow. Huh? Weird. Huh? <laughs> uh, other things I like about the future Korea chapter are um, they. So there's a pair of shoes called Ice Nikes, which I think is pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they talk. That sounds real. Yeah. Uh, she talks about porn slash Disney's. Like she doesn't just call it porn. It's porn slash. Why is it porn slash? Because it's like slash fiction? Maybe. Ooh. That I don't know. Hmm. Let's ex- Where all the princes <laughs> make out with each other? Who's your favorite Disney prince, Andrew? No one ever asked that question. My favorite Disney Probably prince? Probably because they're all boring. <laughs> like, is Aladdin a Disney prince? Well, he had a genie turn him into one. Mm. I mean, he's because functionally he's the prince in that story, right? Even though if he's not Prince Ali, 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 but then Prince Ali is a jerk. It's only Aladdin, which is nice. I don't know who's your favorite Disney prince. Um, Simba. (laughs) Simba. (laughs) That he counts. Han Solo, I guess. Oh, he is a well. That's not his real name. I don't know if we do that, but. That's mm-hmm. a new thing. Um, the <laughs> the other uh, weird thing about the corpocracy that I think you'd enjoy, Andrew, and this is like reductio ad absurdum of, of this line of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, in the future, you can rent ad space on the moon. Right. Um, this is like five years from now. Yeah. Like in real life. so uh, And I, they reach a weird thing. Where like, I don't really know what people do to earn money. But they refer to citizens primarily as consumers, and you have a spending right. quota. Like, mm-hmm. hoarding is referred to as, like, an anti-corpocracy behavior. Like, you have to be spending money all the time. Yep. It's kind of gross. Um, and then that kind of... Again, like, I don't... Again, really, right? Like, is it <laughs> no. still fiction? Like, uh, And also, like, as I say that out loud, there's a really disturbing passage in the last section of the book where the guy with the ladder of civilization is talking about their the successes and failures they've had trying to indoctrinate these local cultures with christianity and western and like european western european values um mm-hmm. and they say that like folks growing up on that island like they don't have an incentive to work because if they're hungry they just like go get food from a tree and if they need to hunt, they need to hunt. And if they need to build shelter, they build shelter. There's not a, like an idea of money um, because their culture is so isolated. And so what they do is they get them like addicted to tobacco so that they have an impetus to like earn money to buy more tobacco. And it's just really gross. It's And it's yeah. only like a, it's a paragraph towards the end of the book. And I read it like five times. I was like, this is gross. 
Yeah, it's really and gross. really it's insidious. Like, it's like our life, but instead of tobacco, because tobacco used to be the thing, but then we discovered that it kills people. And we want our customers to live for longer so they can buy stuff for longer. So now it's like iPods. You do need a new iPod every year. It's true. Mm-hmm. Or else they come for you. Still. Still. <laughs> even though you don't even have to use it. You just, you're contractually obligated when you buy your first iPod to continue to buy them. Yes. Um, so the other like big themes, I guess part of this power theme and, you know, corporate greed versus like literal I'm a person in your face trying to take your stuff greed you know leading to here's literal cannibalism happening um Sonmi writes this declaration she's the future Korean uh, fabricant and she believes that the that the government basically set her up to awaken in the way that she did and then arrest her for it after she'd written these like tracks of kind of fabricant awakening to engender hatred of fabricants and and distrust okay she posits uh in a cycle as old as tribalism ignorance of the other engenders fear fear engenders hatred hatred engenders violence violence engenders further violence until the only rights the only law are whatever is willed by the most powerful huh Hmm. Hmm. Well, no lessons to learn no here. No lessons to learn here. Move right along. Yeah. Uh, so at a certain point, the book boils down to a, a really elaborate riff on like my eighth grade understanding of Hobbes versus Locke. <laughs> like, I feel like there are a lot of elected officials who never really get that far past <laughs> that point. Uh, and the book closes with Adam Ewing basically saying, like, if we believe that the world is set up this way, then we will act accordingly and create a world where we are this terrible. If we believe that we are capable of transcending this cycle, then we can build a future that hopefully moves beyond it. And the now that's interesting to hear that from the character chronologically the most in the past because the rest of the stories don't necessarily bear that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the overall, like, as I was coming to the end of this book, I was like, okay, Mitchell, so you did a real good job of showing me that people are terrible and we're going to set up more systems for people to be terrible. What's <laughs> Is there anything else you have to say? Yeah, right. Uh, and that's what he does have to say. that. The other, like, there's a linking idea of debts in this book, some literal, as I reference, like, Frobisher and Cavendish. But mm-hmm. then there's also a couple of characters that become literally indebted to others, and I think that is part of the answer to this, like, predatory behavior. So Atua is the is the Moriari uh, guy who ends up, like, sneaking on board and then ends up, like, saving Adam Ewing's life at one point. Um, Luisa's father was a like war reporter who used to be a cop. He saved a, like another cop's life, and that's the guy who ends up like saving Luisa's life later. And then mm-hmm. uh, Zachary is very the guy in Future Hawaii is very distrustful of this woman with all the technology that comes to stay with them, and he 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 becomes indebted to her after he convinces Marinim to like save his sister when she like steps on a fish or something and mm-hmm. she's like and he's like i need you to use your future medicine to save my sister and she's like i'm not supposed to that's that's like if you're like in planet earth like if one of the cameraman was like no i got to save this bunny like i can't let it happen yeah, that must be a, like that's why they shoot it all with feelingless drones because <laughs> the humans just kept trying to save all the animals <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so this, this idea, and, and then in, um, future Korea, all of the fabricants are told that they are born with this debt that they have to work off for 12 years and then they will get to go to Hawaii where they're actually killed, as I said. Um, Mm. so they are kind of indoctrinated with these catechisms of self-service, self-sacrifice, um, and service that keep them from ever questioning or rising above it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a cool book. I, you have to get past the contrivances, right? Like why the stories are linked and how the stories are linked. Yeah. 
Cause it it does sound a little, and and I know I know that I particularly just like sort of recoil from <laughs> from novelly <laughs> novels where you can kind of sense the effort behind everything, and maybe that's just like me being a dumb book hipster, and I need to stop it's it. It's weird. <laughs> you found this book hipster niche where you like you bristle at people working too hard as writers, but I also it's not it's not about working too hard. It's about like. It's about the effort and then not just the effort, but then when you can sense the writer looking back over their shoulder and saying, look what I just did. Did you see that? Sure, sure. I what I th- I was reading this and wondering, like putting it in context with something like Infinite Jest, if only because it's that. It's not quite that long, but it's close. It doesn't require mm. as much effort. Um, because I actually really like the structure, I'm glad it doesn't... Uh, chapter hop between stories like I'm I'm kind of glad it's not six uh, stories that like we get random chapters from hopping around Game of Thrones style or something like that it would actually be mm-hmm. a lot harder to track and so the the contrivance like works just as a like okay this is interesting that all these stories are linked but it also allows a structure that like works its way forward and then works its way back rather than like time hopping in a way that I would find very confusing. And I actually think the individual styles of each chapter with one exception are very mm-hmm. good. Um which is the exception? Is it the like the faux funny one or the potboiler one? No, actually I really like I really like the potboiler one. I think it does a really good job of making you interested in like this woman who is writing for what is essentially TMZ, the magazine, um, is go is trying to need to say TMZ, the magazine <laughs> is actually trying to be like a Bob Woodward exposing this like nuclear conspiracy. And I actually really like the tension of that chapter. The funny stuff is funny. Cavendish is a cool character. I actually had a really hard time with the future Hawaii section only because of the like re- the experience of reading the dialect. So this is an early section of that chapter, Andrew. Um, mm-hmm. Zachary's telling his story about when he was nine and his dad got killed and his brother got kidnapped. And he's he's like poses a rhetorical question: Did he go back to save his brother? Nay, Zachary the brave niner, he snaky snuck up a leafy hidey nick to snivel and pray to Somni he'd not be catched and slaved too. Yea, that's all I did. Oh, if I'd been Somni listening, I'd have shooked my head disgustly and crushed me like a straw bug. Now I probably should have read that with a British accent. So you probably no, you probably should have read it like in a Jar Jar Binks voice because that's <laughs> definitely the vibe that it's. God, Nays, I can't do that voice. Can you do that voice? Like me, so, I you know. am not even gonna try because yeah. I think it would come out sound even more racist <laughs> than the actual thing. <laughs> the uh, I think like after ten minutes of reading in that style, I kind of acclimated to it and could kind of get through the white noise of the, all the apostrophes. But mm-hmm. it is really tough when you're coming from someone who's so uh well spoken and thoughtful as Sonmi that chap that those chapters are just so good that you're like oh god how do i make it through this text that i can barely just parse um mm-hmm. and it's like a, it's not based in a real style i think it's like what if cockney but thrust into the future 2000 years and i don't <laughs> okay. so like there's an there's an imagination to it but i it's actually i found it very difficult um and I, mm-hmm. and what sucks is like that's halfway through the book. So if you make it all that way and you're like, well, I can't, I can't stop now. I've started all these characters. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's like the it. It feels a little like that section of Infinite Jest that everybody quits during. Yes, and it's the same problem. The, it's the the, the um, drug addicts in the street, the, right? Yeah, or the what's the? I'm trying to remember the name of the girl like claudine or something like sure that. sure but yeah there's this like when the when it becomes work just section where, <laughs> where everyone, everyone quits, quits doing this in real time uh, i'm not sure no just keep talking okay I got it. um what else do i got i think the birthmark thing 
I expected the book to make more out of the birthmark thing than it does. Uh, two of the characters, Louisa Ray and I think Cavendish, like reference it directly. Like Louisa's reading like real letters that exist in her world. So she's like, this guy has the same thing as me. That's weird. Um, and then Cavendish, even though I think he has the birthmark, is like reading a novel and it's like, it's kind of on the nose that she would have the same birthmark as this guy whose letters she's reading. So not no one else really references it. Oh, no, Somni references it, but not to any of the other characters. Um, I expected more to be made of that, given the fact that Mitchell had tried to weave it in there. Wardine. Oh, Wardine, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ward, Wardine B. Cry. Yep. Uh-huh. That is a really tough passage of that book. This is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the other hard thing to parse about the Zachary chapter is on top of this volcano where there is a, an observatory that the woman Marinim wants to go like inspect some technology and stuff like that. Um, members of this tribe have had like maybe hallucinations of a guy called old Georgie up there uh, who may or may not be real, who may or may not be trying to convince people to kill either themselves or each other or drive them crazy and mm-hmm. what's hard about that section, it's actually, it's not dissimilar from some of your experience reading 100 Years of Solitude, where there's like, okay, is this literally happening? Is this a thing that the character is feeling? So the author is giving it literalization for the reader. Is this a, a belief of this culture that I'm just supposed to take for granted as existing? Mm-hmm. Um, and layer on top of that a, a hard-to-parse language, um, and it gets a little messy, I would say. Okay. But, yeah, it's a book about um, whether or not a purely predatory world will consume itself, um, and what... Short, short answer, spoiler <laughs> alert, is definitely yes. And what we could maybe do about it. So, that's that? That's the book? Cool. So... So, um... So yeah, I hope that I hope that people enjoyed this experiment in bonus episode recording. It's, <laughs> I guess it's just like an early access thing, right? Like the earliest yeah. possible access to the bonus episode. Literally moment to moment access. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that folks got to see a failed joke in real time. That's always fun. Um, which one are you? Uh, I don't. Yeah, they're all worked. I can't yeah, remember a time you... in like 230 something <laughs> episodes where. We've had one go badly, so I'm just like, I'm confused. No, I realize. I misspoke. That was See, that mm-hmm. was my bad joke that I just said out loud. You're, see, but yeah, it was a joke about bad jokes. Bad joke, joke, joke. Inception. <laughs> <laughs> what now? Is that it? I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. If Go there, do your thing. Oh, yeah. So this book, uh, as I said at the top of the show, was recommended to us uh, by Kenley. So thanks, Kenley. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. I'm glad I got to tackle it for the show. Uh, if you want to recommend a book to us uh, and make sure that it gets like definitely on our list, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon project at overdue uh, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Bye. Um, you can also tell us what you... Th- <laughs> Have you never done this <laughs> No, I've been doing it all weird. You can also uh, send us comments uh, about the episodes on our social media feeds, twitter.com slash overdue pod or Facebook dot com slash overdue pod uh you can send us an email we do get those and occasionally write those back at overdue pod at gmail dot com uh andrew if folks want to know more about the show where should they go overduepodcast.com where we have links to our patreon project like you said and itunes and rss and google play and stitcher if you subscribe using any of those services I think iTunes might be the only one that supports reviews. I don't know. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, rate and review us because we like it because it makes us feel good. Everybody in this, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir with the chat going, but because <laughs> all of you have reviewed us, right? I can guilt you in real time. <laughs> um, also up there, we have links to HeadGum, our podcast network and Spreaker, our podcast host and all the books that we're going to read. I think we're getting to- close to the end of March, but we'll have April's schedule up um, in a couple of weeks. We've got some good stuff coming. 
Um, yeah, by the time you're listening to this on the main feed, you should have also seen our Joy Luck Club episode. But if you haven't listened to that, you probably can. Andrew will be will be reading that book. And yeah, talking it doesn't about exist it. yet, that episode, but it will. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. I think we're done. I think we're good. Um, so thanks again, everybody, for, for sitting in. And uh, let us know if you've got any feedback or anything. But uh, until, we, until we see you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. Ready? Three, two, one. Ow. <laughs> oh, my ring hit a nerve in my other hand. That happened to me on the day of my wedding. Oh, and man. it hurts oh, so much. That sucks. My whole finger. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit this button. Okay.